Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, member JDS07 shares her path to joining a top private equity fund as an analyst right out of undergrad. We cover a wide range of topics in this episode, including what she learned during her bulge bracket investment banking internship and why she wanted to skip investment banking to go straight to PE, what she's seeing in the deal landscape, how her firm does diligence and how she is specifically involved, and also detailed advice on how to prepare for the super competitive private equity recruiting process. Enjoy. JDS07, thank you so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. It's my pleasure, Patrick. Yeah. So it'd be- I've been part of the community for a while, so very happy to be able to share my background. Awesome. Yeah. So could you give the users and the listeners a just quick summary of where and kind of where you came from and what you're doing now? Yeah, so I originally was an immigrant, uh, currently now a citizen, grew up in a few different places and went to a target school based mm-hmm. in the Northeast. There, I participated on on-campus recruiting, got an internship with the Bold Rocket Bank um, in a well-known investment banking group, did my summer internship there, but decided to transition full-time to direct private equity, which is what I want to do. So now I'm with a pretty well-known firm. We just raised um, our fifth fund, doubled our fund size from a previous fund, and have been looking at a bunch of companies in a broad array of industries. Great. So you kind of skipped banking altogether. So you did it over the summer. Was there something about that experience that made you not want to do it, or did you always know you wanted private equity? So I always knew I want to do private equity. And for me, it was a choice between getting into private equity out of undergrad with a really good analyst program, as well as with a really good firm and have the touch on that later, or going back to banking and doing my typical two years. My thought process then was really centered around the fact that I think if I can do private equity earlier, it not only gives me a better leg up, over my peers in investment banking and just knowing how to think like a private equity investor, knowing how to do due diligence on the company and the things that a person in P would really focus on mm-hmm. versus I think the banking experience, which is still very valuable, but focuses a bit more on the marketing side of selling a company and less around of the intricacies of diligence and post-integration work. Do you feel now that you've kind of been working for a year in PE straight out of undergrad, do you feel that 
you're missing anything? Do you feel like there was enough training at your firm where you felt comfortable? Like, are you actually running, doing LBO modeling? Did you do enough of that kind of an undergrad or you feel a little bit like you're still ramping up there? Yeah, you know, I think um, in PE, there's definitely the sense that you might have simply fewer deals. Um, now, I'd caveat that with knowing some, a lot of my friends are still in banking. They have many deals that don't close um, and many deals that really go nowhere. And there is that similar feeling key because at the private equity firm, you're not really buying a lot of companies every year. My firm especially, we buy around two to four companies a year and we're very capital with where we put our capital. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, there might be a similar sense of just you spend a lot of work doing due diligence on the company and a deal and it doesn't really go through. On the flip side, I think the amount of work and the kind of work I'm doing in PE is vastly, um, just vastly substantial than what I did back in my industry of banking and also what I saw the, the first and second year analysts were doing this. Say this because, you know, here I'm really owning all the models, I'm owning all the diligence streams and these are very, these get very complex. In banking, oftentimes, you're just taking one template and you're making some smaller changes to it. I mean, in my group, we had one humongous uh, M&A, the murder model template that essentially has comms, has LBO, mm-hmm. it has DCF, and you really, it really is a matter of often just changing some figures and changing some numbers and everything that flows through. Here, all the companies look at, even if it's a company in a, with a very similar business model as one we looked at before, we're typically always building our models from scratch. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a different way of building things. And so here the, the learning opportunity is just um, a lot more. And I found that also senior data members give you more time to explain their views on companies, on industries. And there are a lot more nuances that we make in our models as well. Things around tax distributions, um, you know, various kinds of more complex, like maybe unit-level basis, unit-level modeling, you know, mm-hmm. more company revenue bills and so forth that I just haven't really seen. Like the, op- the Basically, the operating models are more complex, more detailed. and Yeah, and, it, it's yeah. far more complex. Um, and the cases are far more nuanced because... Because it's I your money at stake. <laughs> it's your money at stake. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the LBO, the LBO mechanics are the same no matter what. So, you know, whether or not you're growing EBITDA at 5%, and here we really focus on the flows from it flows from uh, mechanics right or your you know growing sales like two percent that makes a huge difference in your returns in your model so, so it, it sounds really about so sorry to interrupt but it sounds like you made the transition fairly easily then like not just having the internship at the bulge bracket bank where you were doing like you mentioned more of the template but templated models and, and stuff like that to actually having to build something from scratch it wasn't a hard transition from you you had enough training you felt com- you felt confident or you ramped up fast enough or was there something you felt like okay I'm in trouble, like, and you just had to learn by trial by fire kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's a mix of really a ladder and just a quicker ramp. Um, mm-hmm. I can honestly tell you that, especially because I was in a very um, niche group mm-hmm. in my Bosch Rocket Bank. None of the models that I was looking at or, or dealing with really actual here. Even on the operating model side, the way that we build our operating models here um, for consumer retail companies, it's far more complex um, and far more neurons mm-hmm. than a simple revenue assumption build. So that was something we really had to ramp up and learn. 
on the LBO model side, we also have a very uh, complex LBO model built that typically people utilize in certain ways. So that's not something I've seen in, you know, either the Wall Street Oasis materials or mm-hmm. um, other materials online. So all this kind of had to learn by myself and with some help as well from, you know, senior associates at the firm. But I would say it's typically at my firm, um, you're given as much as you can prove that you can chew on. Mm-hmm. And if I just want to say, hey, I want to get this modeling rep or I want to have the experience doing this, then you're typically able to get this experience. And, and that's been a really valuable part of my growth here. And I assume that's because you guys are coming right out of undergrad. They understand you're just, quote, anal- you're not like a pre-MBA associate, you're an actual analyst, you know, coming right out of school. So they are a little bit more supportive or is have you talked to other friends at other similar kind of an- private equity analyst programs? Is it similar? Yeah, I think it's... Um, First, I should say that there aren't that many uh, well-known private equity analyst programs, period. Right. I have talked to a couple of friends who are somewhat transitioning to one, and I can say that I feel like um, their their job is often not as technical. What I found is that, and I during my recruiting process, I interviewed with probably seven or eight private equity firms for analyst positions. I found that a, a large handful of them have more sourcing oriented uh task like maybe 40 percent of our time will be spent on sourcing deals which is not anything we do here i mean none of the junior people do any amount of sourcing really yeah you're not dialing, um, trying, to, then, trying to make connections with yeah. founders you're actually just doing the you're getting the deals are coming in through the partners and then you're actually analyzing them or through bankers yeah yeah okay I mean, we we might actually be proactive and reach out or we might use some of our own resources to leverage this but really 99% of the time, it's all completely just, um, you know, coming down from the senior detail, senior members of the firm. And I also think that we are also very big on data. Mm-hmm. So we recently used Alteryx platform. We used Microsoft BI. We used Tableau and very different kinds of data visualization tools. We're also buying consumer credit card information and tying this with how we're seeing um how consumers might be spending their dollars mm. at comp- on competing businesses. So we're actually driving a lot of our analytics using data. And I think as a result of that, we're very, very, we do very extensive due diligence. Um, are and you that hiring, amount of data are, analysis. Are you hiring outside consultants for that very deep, those very deep dives, like data analysts or data scientists, or are you having to learn that? Like, are you an expert in Tableau now? Or are you an expert in this data analytics or Python? Or are you bringing in other people to help you manipulate it? Yeah, so we, we used to have outside consultants. Um, but we found that you know, they were really expensive. And this is something that probably the firm should really you should not do. So we brought on someone um, as our head of data analytics. And we have trainings for everyone at the firm, especially for analysts and associates. Hmm. to learn and leverage these skills. And I can tell you, uh, so we have people kind of coming and teaching us about Alteryx and partially figuring things out as we do deals, um, but it's been really helpful. We've been able to just do a lot more, um, do a lot more data dissections um, mm-hmm. in a much faster way through utilizing these resources. And we really just do a lot of due diligence. I mean, it's oftentimes like a leave no stones unturned process and I think that's been the most valuable learning even beside the modeling because all, all of our learnings from 
these analyses are what gets into what gets put as input in our model, and that's what better informs us about you know I'm how we think about the company's you know financial health. Yeah, I'm really kind of surprised. I guess when you get further along in a process, it's important to do all those deep dives. But from what I from my scene, from what I've heard, oftentimes the you know, it's outsourced. Oftentimes it's, it's more kind of just checking the boxes. And then what really comes down to is the deal dynamics. Like, are you actually able to win a, um, an actual, an, an auction of, of some sort, because there's so much capital tracing, chasing so few deals. Are you guys finding that prices are just like, you're losing a lot of auctions and you're just not able to, even after you've done all that work, um, that you lose a lot of deals because you're so analytical and you're finding the valuations too high. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, what we found is that definitely, you know, here everything nowadays is north of 12 times usually. And what we found typically is that if we find that this is a really compelling asset, we are not afraid of bidding up to you know, 16, 17 times. Mm. But it really, all of this has to kind of be backed down by the data and how, just how much we feel like we can really drive the company's value. Mm-hmm. So my firm is very much operationally focused. Um, mm-hmm. We're not a kind of, firm that goes in and just calls a bunch of people or do any kind of financial engineering and we are very well regarded in the space that we play in so oftentimes we, we might try to play some kind of games to maybe bid enough to get into the next round mm-hmm. and then after we do extensive business due diligence and hire third parties and we find that this is still an asset we really, really want to own then we would raise the finish line um, and we typically move through a process pretty fast Got I think it. the past, there, there have only been a couple of times when we have been beaten out by a party uh, for assets that we really, really wanted and just refused to master price. And right. those were typically times when um, the strategic the came firm in or was something. A very, or... Yeah, we're like yeah. a very special kind of firm who would essentially just outbid everyone and preempt the process entirely without, uh, without anyone's knowledge. And Right. That's happened a few times, but typically if we lose a process, it's because we just felt like where this asset will ultimately end up trading at is not where we think we can get a uh, very high return that we're trying to underwrite. You know, are we wrong? Are we right all the time? No, but I think we've typically hit a lot of um, these points of the mark since we see a lot of companies that we looked at in the past come back to auction again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's been, that's been a kind of interesting process to whether or not we made the right choice in passing on the company. Yeah, that's always fascinating when you can look back and be like, "Well, I'm glad we didn't get that deal done," or "I'm happy." I yeah. wish we had got, or "I wish we had gotten that one." Right? Um, you know, yeah. hindsight's twenty twenty. But um, real quick, I'd also like to let, so you know when you're paying up to those types of multiples um, for you know for these businesses, obviously there there's some strong growth prospects and 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 the like. Are you able to get much more leverage? I know back when I was in private equity, you know things are closer to trading around, you know, eight to 12 times, not 15 to 17. <laughs> and that was still considered, yeah. that was still considered a uh, booming time. It's, uh, you know, 15 to 17, maybe you're dealing with slightly smaller companies that have, are faster growing, but yeah. um, are you able to, are the, are the banks coming along for this and, and allowing you to re- keep your equity checks small? Are they coming in at, you know, six, seven, eight times? Or are they staying conservative? And how, how is that kind of, capital structure shaking out in terms of how these deals are, are being closed. Yeah. You know, I think we've typically been able to leverage, um, say if we're buying a company at 12 times, we've typically been able to leverage, 
leverage up to at least six or something even six point five times. Mm-hmm. Um, our own portfolio companies, we're actually good at getting very low rates for our debt, and I can tell there's there have been some companies that we've even proposed leveraging up to ultimately eight times. So mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of eight to ten times, and that's really outside the norm. Mm-hmm. But you know, we've found that generally the lenders are pretty bullish alongside their uh, key partners, and that might also be just part of wanting to do, you know, get a slice of the pie. Um, and this, the and this, so, this late in the cycle, is there any sort of fear or pullback, or is there is there any sort of cooling on that, or are people kind of just plowing right ahead? And this is, you know. June 2019, we're talking here. So, are people a little nervous with all the yeah. you know the trade wars and all this stuff going on? That's kind of creating a little bit of um, fear in the market. Is it is that kind of translating to debt and private equity, or no? Yeah, I, I think there's a little bit of that, and and so the conversation that we usually have with lenders when we're asking them to take a look at the company with us is typically around the cash flow profile of the company and just. Is general stability, mm-hmm. um, and we all we always kind of model a sort of downside case as well, and we also model a sort of a more upside case. And I think what we found is that if we think that this company can really sustainably be levered at six point five times, then we're able to convince lenders to get us there. If we don't even think that we would be comfortable levering this thing at six times, maybe it's more five point five times, mm-hmm. uh, then lenders will typically be more comfortable because. We are really trying to not, our goal is to not kind of maximize uh, our equity upside of the company at the risk of leaving the company with zero cash. We typically want the company to have some cash left over for accretive M&A opportunities um, Mm -hmm. or, you know, other kind of initiatives. Yeah. So usually the levers that we're aiming at is pretty much within the ballpark of a lender, I would say. And if we feel like we can be more aggressive with this deal because this company is you know, securitized um, and has very and has consistently yeah. you know steady yeah. cash flow even during the last recession, uh, then I think we get we'd be pretty comfortable leveraging out like maybe seven eight times and can kind of get some of the lenders on board at least. So and you could be more aggressive. With in this, your we bed. haven't really yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. We just haven't seen that much uh, that many issues yet, and I don't think the lenders or even us at this point we feel like company valuations, at least intervaluations, will only tank because we think there might be a recession in 2020. Mm-hmm. What might get really much affected is how the company's cash flow profile might change and how that affects your ultimate exit multiple and the sort of market, um, you know, market favor there. But mm-hmm. at least on the interest that we've really seen, then the lenders have, have been like, oh, well, we think, you know, next year elections, Trump, who knows what will happen. We don't want to we are afraid of putting on this much down on the company. There hasn't been anything like that. Okay. That's interesting. Thanks for sharing. So in terms of let's, let's go back a little bit, talk a little bit about your recruiting because you talked, you mentioned a little bit about how a lot of the private equity analysts um, recruiting processes were more about like sourcing was, were those yep. specific interviews, were they asking you to like actually do mock I've heard from some of these sourcing places where like they'll have you do a mock call for like a CEO and see how you sell them or introduce yourself. Do they have you do any of that type of stuff or was it LBO modeling tests? Was it all fit? It'd be, it'd be great to get some, um, some specifics that we could share with the listeners around the private equity interview process for coming straight out of undergrad. Yeah. So I think, um, 
I should say on the technical side, very few would even have you sit down for a full model test. That's typically for the associate stage, and that's also part of the reason why I want to get into private equity earlier, because the associate interviews are so much tougher. Mm-hmm. Um, at my firm, for example, the associates are basically sat down in front of a blank Excel and asked to go to the street statement model, uh, come up with a sort of case study, given a, a sim of a past company we invested in for super hours and just go from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, what I found as I saw the firms I interviewed with, it's a lot more of first talking about your summer initial experience. And that's a very big part, especially if you interned at an investment bank or you interned in consulting. So talking about your deals and being able to articulate the pros and cons of a particular any kind of M&A deal, why you would invest in company, why you would not invest in company. And then a lot of questions were centered around... How did you prepare for that? What? Specifically, like, how did you prepare? Like, your, did you just review your deals before you go into that? So after the summer of your intern, IB internship, you're like, okay, I have private equity analyst interviews coming up. I'm just going to review my deals. Did you prepare, like, cheat sheets? How did you kind of get ready to think as an investor rather than as a banker? Yeah, so I... I wrote out a very long guide about my deals, kind of all the financial mm-hmm. metrics there, the relevant metrics, revenue, EBITDA. Uh, and I even, I only had, we only had a pitch that was sort of a final project, so it wasn't anything live. But I was able to spin it as if it were a real deal that I did a pitch on. Right. And we really talk about, you know, synergies, financial metrics, and quant- like quantitative and quantitative metrics for why this would make sense. Yeah. And also risk factors that might rise as well as any mitigants to it. It's also good if you just simply talk about the fact that, oh, it didn't go through because XYZ didn't make sense or we didn't feel like this was really achievable given this company's focus or given this company's geographic exposure or given right customer where, concentration um, or whatever you know, it is. Yeah, yeah, where customers are or where the microeconomy is. So it's really thinking about all aspects. It's both, I think, combining what you would do for a consulting interview yeah, and then what you would, with all the financial metrics. Um, yeah, I call metrics. that, and also that specific deal, I call them deal cheat sheets. We actually started including them in the private equity interview course, like samples from actual people who broke into private equity. I think it's probably the single biggest improvement we've made because it's that's the most important thing is that you have your deals locked down and you can talk about them intelligently. Um, you know, everyone freaks out about the LBO modeling test, but I guess, especially in your case where you're interviewing for a private equity analyst a lot, you don't have to 99 times out of hundred, you're not even getting a test, right? You're, they're seeing, can you talk intelligently? Yeah, I would say you have a 50% chance of getting either a paper LBO or mm-hmm. a sort of, uh, case. mini consulting case study Yep. where the case study would be where they give you the mind centered around a few choices, um, you know, company wants to, or it would be something like, oh, should we invest in a company? The company has three growth revenues. Uh, here are some figures. And the first, we invest in a company. Second question would be, if we do invest in a company, what uh, growth, like which options should it take? Should it take? And you'll talk about the pros and cons of each. Mm-hmm. So you do, you both have to arrive at some kind of sometimes IR or NPV number, but you also have to really think strategically about this opportunity and be able to articulate reasons on both the positive and negative sides for it. So I think it's really kind of half and half because okay. you're either getting that or the paper albio. I'd probably say paper albio is easier to prepare because 
and it was really straightforward. Um, there's not that many steps you can, you, you, you know, you have to have a certain amount of information just to be able to even do it. And it's oftentimes a check in the boxing, the case study. And I can even say that for this case study, I wasn't actually able to arrive at the final numerical answer because I could not compute, uh, an NTV just mentally. <laughs> but I was able to really articulate really well and say that, hey, if I have Excel or if I have a calculator in front of me, I would be able to get you to the exact answer. But that aside, this is a solution I would recommend. Um, I think overall P interviews. Oh, so when they had you do the case, when, around, they, when they had you do the case, they didn't let you yeah. do it in front of Excel to get like an IRR or a multiple on invested capital or anything like no, that? No, it, it, was, it was very much, um, and these are very much of a, they will just give you numbers. Okay. And they'll sit in front of you and just give you numbers, and you're expected to either do some quick mental math or you're going to write it down on a piece of paper. Like, and that's you know, what's the where cash the, flow the coming out? Feeling comes in. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you some rough math, and some that's where it helps to have some sort of rough idea of what IRR yeah, or what. Because you know. it, it's it's typically asking you, this is to test your uh, intellectual horsepower. Mm-hmm. So analyst programs are not expecting to know a lot of things as you would if you were recruiting for an associate position, regardless of whether or not you actually know anything. But for analyst programs, it's typically about just how do you think and how you know how much do you feel we can load your brain with information to have you still arrive at um, sensible conclusions about investment and how much we can trust you to run analysis independently provide thoughtful responses to our answers. And I found that especially at my firm, we're all given an opinion and voice. I have been on the other side of uh, listening to bank um, bank pitches and right. have had my, you know, my managing director ask me what I think of the pitches, how I would compare these, where there are strengths and weaknesses and actually implement some of my suggestions. So as a result of that is the fact that we're still a pretty fairly lean team, although we're medium sized as an organization, you just have to be very much um, on your feet and be a quick thinker. And you cannot just, uh, you know, kind of rely on other people to feed you answers all the time. So that's why I think in the, and in the same way with associates, but, you know, add like a huge step up in responsibility to be able to lead deals and, you know, check analyst works. So on that front, it's definitely just a lot more kind of focus on semi-consulting thinking and being faster with freedom. Great. So anything else on the recruiting process before we get off of that in terms of for the analysts? So you shared a little bit, but was there anything unexpected that you found when you went through the process? I think um, one should always have some views about industries that they like and industries they don't like and be able to have some examples of companies that they with characteristics that would fit their um, rationale. Mm-hmm. So what I find oftentimes is many people ask you, well, so if this is a firm with a more special specialized um, strategy, they would ask, why would you like our strategy? Why do you think we are able to, um, you know, compete for deals better than our competitors? Mm-hmm. Why do you think XYZ industry is not a good industry for us to invest in? And you need to have a very, you can't, you you cannot just give very general answers. It needs to be pretty specific. Mm-hmm. And what would be good is to give examples of companies in those sectors that you that you can use, um, for examples. Interesting. And so, and I think were, that's that's like a very big part of the the interview process. 
And so when you were preparing for these interviews, you would look at portfolio companies that the fund had invested in, or how would you do that specifically? How would you prepare for that? Yeah, so my preparation strategy came one fold with at least a week before, I would just read a lot of Wall Street Journal articles, Financial Times, um, all the industry news, and just have a view generally on the type of all the industries that the company plays in and the types of industries it's pro- that are even adjacent to its portfolio companies. Mm-hmm. And I typically pick a couple of them. I'm not going to, you don't really have time to go through all the portfolio companies, but pick a, pick a couple that seem interesting to you that you feel like you either are really interesting about the space or you can talk about it a bit more in detail um, and be able to use these examples during your interview. So every single private equity firm I've interviewed at, to some degree, they would ask you, well, tell us about a portfolio company of ours and why do you think we invested in this company? You know, how do you think uh, it might do in the future? What are some risks to see? for this company uh, in this industry, because you, you don't really have any financials, you don't really know how they're right. really doing, which is very good actually, because if these were public companies, then you would be expected to know everything about it. Right. And so you just want to have a really you know informed view of how you think this company's uh, you know, exposure to XYZ or certain geographies or might be over-indexed to certain population might impact other things. It's really much of a, a chain reaction thinking there. But you need to be able to say it in a very concise manner, and and again, it's very good that these are oftentimes private companies with zero financial. Oh yeah, it'd be a nightmare otherwise. You just, you know, it'd be a nightmare. It would be right. And, yeah. And so you just want to have a view on a few companies. I have had the I have had the interviews with private equity firms where they would ask me literally for three portfolio companies of theirs and to be able to talk in depth about them. It would be like, okay, tell us about a portfolio company of ours that you like and all the reasons why you like it and don't like it. And then it'll be a tell me a second one and then tell me a third one. And then they would even ask you sometimes what portfolio company um, of ours do you think is the worst of the lot? Why? <laughs> and which one do you think is the best? And you you so better these, hope, you better hope that, that you better hope that whoever you're interviewing with, that wasn't like their baby or their deal. Right. <laughs> when you say I have actually saying. had a chance where I mentioned, you know, I think this company might be uh, the worst of my law and it actually ended up being my interviewer's pro company. But <laughs> some of the reasons some of the reasons I said for why I think this company might have more headwinds than other pro companies were spot on. Yeah. Um, so that tend to be a nice conversation. But if you're wrong, that might be quite embarrassing if this ends up being, you know, the biggest hitter. Um, and I think this is less common. So this kind of what's the best, what's the worst is less common. I've only had it a couple of times. Right. Um, so I wouldn't be as worried. And as well, if the company has like 40 portfolio companies, you should not expect that kind of question. It just, it would be impossible for you to right. even be able to, you know, search up each company for 20 minutes and have a view on them when they're just so different. But it really, you know, all P firms like that you really like their portfolio companies and if you don't it's fine to be honest mm-hmm. but you need to give very thoughtful answers and be open to pushback from them and yeah. that actually might be a good way to make yourself stand out i think you can say well you know i i love that but phrase it in a in a softer way so that you don't come off as saying that oh i don't like your firm strategy or the company investing but that might be a way to stand out actually because everybody will be talking about how amazing uh, their the deals most are obvious yeah. points right 
So that's just the way I think to stand out. Um, I was the only, I was really the only one hired of my year Mm -hmm. with my firm. So, and I know that it was also a really competitive process that was going against a few other uh, investment bankers and a few other MBB consultants, you know, who had internships and, I think what really made me stand out was just being able to articulate my view of their strategy really well and prove that I have a very solid understanding of why they why they invest the way they do. That's great. That's I think that's really important and some something the listener should take heed is just being able to be prepared for that specific interview, that specific fund, rather than going in and just only focusing on yourself and why, you know, the, the generic questions that you know you're going to get of why private equity, why, you know, or why growth equity or not. Yeah, and I think what also helped me, and this is what I did for every single fund that I interviewed with, I created a little tracker. Mm-hmm. I track, so I would take some of their portfolio companies that I felt like were interesting, just pick a couple that, you know, I really understand and feel like I can speak at length about. And then I would try to find news on these companies and what they've done. So, for example, I was able to say in one interview, okay, you guys are really value add. You are you guys like to be value add partners to management team. I really bring a lot of expertise on add on acquisitions. I've noted that you guys have done X number of acquisitions in the first three years post um, post investment on your portfolio companies. You know, and being able to cite these statistics um, just really shows your interest in the firm because they will be like, oh, well, you actually this shows you actually doesn't work, and it's really simple. I mean, you have their name. You could just do some Googling and see what news come up um, and just kind of like track of these companies have done or what initiatives they've really started. And you can kind of attribute that to the success. And um, it just shows you've done, yeah, you've just done, you've done your homework and you come in looking more knowledgeable, looking more serious. And it just probably puts you ahead of a lot of the competition and gets you, it almost guarantees you you're going to be one of the final um final group exactly and there's also they also ask you a lot of behavior questions that's a a, that's even far more than banking behavior questions because they want to make sure you're a cultural fit any tough ones that were really small yeah any tough ones that weren't expected or anything odd that you you had during that recruiting period yeah i think honestly i never really prepare for behavioral questions i really just have it down for my top you know my strengths and then maybe two weaknesses mm-hmm. um Curi- really curious did you have and, did you have story- you know, a couple of maybe case studies did you have stories that you would pull from for those strengths rather than saying i am a hard worker i am so blah 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 would you kind of try to layer yeah. in stories okay yeah because I, I always tell 100%. candidates to it, do that yeah right you you always have to say well you know, I, my, my story about be like, well, look, you know, I'm a really hard worker. Give an example. And then when I was in school or when I was growing up, mm-hmm. you know, give examples. Yeah. Um, that really just shows the fact that you are, this is, you know, who you are. And for your weakness as well, you always want to tailor to, you know, and recognize that I have this weakness and it's usually something that's not, you know, quote unquote, a real weakness. Um, but since then, I focus on improving this this area through X, Y, Z, and, you know, just, it's a very simple kind of a point second answer, but you're, that's almost like a check in the boxing as well, mm-hmm. um, that you were able to just had that, you know, had that be um, dealt with. What's also really useful is to be able to kind of guide the, guide the interview as much as you can. And 
you can do that through trying to find some commonalities with your interviewers or in some cases, and this doesn't occur, this doesn't really happen with all interviews, being able to tailor an answer and turn that into a question afterwards and turn that into a discussion. Then it goes really smoothly and you're able to control what you guys are talking about and also lessen time for them to ask you some question. Can you give me an example of uh, that? that, So you're talking about like, just try to, if you see that they're going in a specific direction, kind of just try to take that and kind of run with it. Or can, is there a specific example you could give us? Cause that's, I think I agree with you, but that's a Um, skill that I don't think is obvious to a lot of people. Yeah. It's, it's definitely not, um, it's something easy to do. And and I have also encountered situations where if it looks like it's going to be a question, the interviewer might say, that's a good question. Uh, but let's save that for the end when you ask me some questions and then kind of go off their reading off their list of interview questions to ask. I have had those certain, those uh, interviews and in those situations, you just have to deal with it. But otherwise it can sometimes be, you can kind of tailor things to, well, you know, this is why I'm so hardworking. I did this project at school, um, which actually really resonates with your firm's strategy here. And, you know, use these little ties and these stories to be able to make a connection to the firm. And that might end up being a little bit of a conversation. Yeah, and that that really ties to your, your firm strategy here. Like I've noticed that, you know, for this portfolio company, you, you know, you were able to really partner with management. And that's something that I really believe in as well. These little ties, um, and this is not a, the greatest example, but I think being able to turn I know a little what you're response into yeah. something that's more like a little, you know, you're constantly, story as yeah. a you're, you're using your story, but then also continually tying it back to the firm somehow in terms of commonalities, in terms of trying to show that you're the right fit for that position. Um, and always coming exactly. back to how it's prepared you for this specific role, how your stories and how your, your experience in the past, even if you're, I guess, an undergrad, which is pretty incredible to be able to do that <laughs> straight out of undergrad. So and, yeah, Sarah, go ahead. Yeah. I, w- I would even say that it's sometimes less about how well you are, how well positioned you are to join the firm. Mm-hmm. I think some firms feel some kind of pushback around just overselling yourself. Yeah. Um, I would always tire towards your interest in the firm. And it's almost just like, you know, continue to say really positive things about the firm and turning the overall tone of this interview to be a really positive expression, an impression on the interviewer just oh well this kid really really likes my firm mm-hmm. you know he or she knows a lot about it and you know, obviously it's fit and you almost make them kind of forget whether or not you might be qualified it's just about well this person could definitely do it you know right. he or she is definitely um they- someone i want to have on my team and even if he or she is not the smartest person or knows all those things we can train them it's fine you want to have leave this kind of impression yeah, it makes sense. You want them to kind of have that connection with you to actually like you as a person and feel good about exactly. Yeah, yeah that, that's critical. Um, you know, you can be the smartest person in the the entire process and still not get the job, and and wonder why. <laughs> but maybe you didn't. Yep, we've right had connection. those. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, one last thing before we kind of end it, I guess. Um, you know, it, actually a couple of things. First, would you be comfortable sharing your pay or a range of pay um, around, you know, base and bonus? Because I think there's not as much around the private equity analyst comp um, on this versus what's yeah, on the street. For sure. So we get paid uh, 
same as the investment bankers on the base side, maybe a bit more actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the bonus side, it's typically a bit less. So base around so, 80 to 100 and then for 80 to 90 or 80 to... Yeah, base is usually like 85 to 100. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And then your bonus is a bit less. So this bonus is a very... It's a set bonus. So you're basically... Guaranteed have it. a target bonus. Um, you can get up to this essentially. Got if it. You do well. Got it. Okay, and then but instead of like a you know like a big range like sixty to eighty k, the firm will essentially tell you your target bonus is this amount. Got it. And it's around fifty to seventy five percent of base or so, or is that typical? Like a range, like yeah, it's probably more around. Uh, 50 to 60%. Okay. Yeah, that sounds right. So, um, anything, so what about for you? What's, what's kind of next? Are are there, are there direct promotes, um, at the fund you're at? Is it something where you want to stay obviously a few more years or are you thinking business school? What's kind of next steps for you? Yeah. So I'm really fortunate to be at a firm where business school isn't really required. Um, and a lot of senior members don't have MBAs. Mm -hmm. It's also a program where, Analysts typically get uh, directly promoted to associates and then go up the ladder as long as you perform. And so my current plan is to just keep on working at my current firm. I mean, it's been a good experience so far. The people are really, really nice and they genuinely care about you. Maybe you'll be a lifer there. Maybe that'll be your career for 20 years. Who knows? It def- we definitely actually have had some analysts who started at the firm mm-hmm. out of undergrad and they have gone on to become managing directors. Wow, that's crazy. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really crazy. Um, I would say at least half the firm have been here for more than a few years. So that's, 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 that's also a really sign. good culture because yeah, it just means sign. that everyone wants to make sure you're living your best life uh, while you're contributing to the firm. So it's definitely a really great culture here. And I've, uh, you know, comparing this with my time in banking, I can certainly say that when banks talk about good culture, it's really a lip service. Mm-hmm. Um, when PE firms talk about good culture and you can actually feel it, that's very, very important. Interesting. Well, I really appreciate all the time you've taken. It's gone longer than usual, but I, I, you had a lot of interesting things to say. So I really appreciate you sharing all of your wisdom with the listeners here and, uh, and joining us. So thank you. It was my pleasure. Yeah, I know this is a very um, obscure space, and there really aren't that many firms with analyst programs, period. Yeah, so it's, it's really helpful to get that's it. So when I got here, I, I felt like there was definitely a lot of prep that I had to go through, and um, some amount of luck and hoping that I just get the offer. So it's been definitely been a great experience. Living the dream. I think uh, it's incredible. It's incredible. It's what a lot of people want to do. So <laughs> congrats on everything. Well, better hours, at least. <laughs> True. <laughs> All right, well, take care. Thanks so much. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.